If you drive a Ford automobile, you're in good company. To date, there are 985 million Ford vehicles on the road. So who here drives a Ford vehicle? Okay, a good number of us. Uh, You almost didn't. Uh, The Ford Motor Company started in Henry Ford's garage, the first car He was a young guy. He was very excited. He had this massive vision. And he was a guy who was consumed with enthusiasm to get at this thing. I don't know if this has happened in your life, but this was true of him. It's been true of me. If I'm consumed by something, I might not eat. I might not sleep. I just want to accomplish that thing. And so with this kind of drive, Ford was going at this thing, and I was surprised to learn, though, that about halfway through building, making his first car, he had an urge to quit, that the desire to continue completely shut off. And the reason why this happened was because as he's building this first car, he recognized there were lots of things that he had done wrong already, and he was getting better and better ideas for a second car. You know, he was distracted by doing a better job. And I guess this makes some sense, right? I mean, why continue building this first one if I can build a better second car? Well, even though it, didn't make, even though it did make sense, Ford didn't quit. He stuck to it. And, and what he did by completing that first car is learn more and more things that would help him with his second car. You know, his temptation to quit wasn't really a desire to do better. It was just simply a temptation to quit. But he stuck to it, and he saw this project fulfilled. It was his first car that led to his second car, and then 985 million cars later, that's the end result. Uh, More importantly, another end result is Ford himself, the person who he became. The, The quality of the man is directly connected to the quality of the car and the quality of the company. Ford learned a really significant lesson that day. It's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Now, how does that life lesson apply or relate to our praying? That's our topic for today. In this series, Teach Us to Pray, we've been learning essential lessons from Jesus, and we're trying to incorporate those into our prayer life. We've looked at disciplined prayer and balanced prayer and corporate prayer and intercessory prayer. And it's our hope that as we've taught God's word on these subjects, that we've begun to apply God's word as we actually start praying. You know, so let's assume for a moment that most of us have spent time over the last month as we've considered this stuff praying. And my guess is if that's the case, then we've learned a couple of things. The first thing is that the discipline of praying is really serious business. It's kind of hard work, but it is really worth it. The other thing that we might learn is that some of the things that we've been praying for haven't been answered yet, or at least they haven't been answered in a timeline that we're extremely comfortable with. You know, and so we've got to figure out how do we keep at this discipline of praying, and how do we keep praying for the same thing, a consistent issue, over and over and over again? To answer those questions, we're going to turn once again to our teacher, Jesus, to see how he would instruct us. So turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Luke chapter 18. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 8. You can feel free to follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but I would encourage absolutely everyone here to take out your weekly welcome and a pen so that you can take some notes. You know, the more time that I spend teaching God's word, I realize that the people who need this message, those of us that are struggling to keep praying, in this case specifically, or to keep praying about something specific, we're eager to hear what God has to say. But some of us, we don't find ourselves in that boat, 
And, and so we're not nearly as urgent in our desire to listen to what Jesus has to say on this. But, but let me say this clearly. Every single one of us at some point in our life will be tempted to give up in our praying. And so allow Jesus' words today to be your life raft in this moment if you're in that boat right now. But, but also, a moment on the horizon is coming where we need to know these things. So take some notes. Jot some thoughts down as Jesus teaches us. Here's the big idea. Persevering prayer is fueled by an accurate view of ourselves and an accurate view of God. Follow along as I read the passage for us, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Persevering prayer is fueled by an accurate view of ourselves. That's the first thing we're looking at, an accurate view of ourselves. The gospel writer Luke sets us up in this opening verse with some really important information for understanding this passage. He, he tells us that what follows is a parable, and it's a parable with an identified purpose. Now, some of you may remember a series we did a couple of summers ago on parables, and in those messages, we kept on talking about what a parable is as Jesus uses it and what it's meant to accomplish. And the reason that we kept revisiting that was because we're never going to understand this passage until we understand how to interpret a parable, how to read a parable. And so for a quick review, a parable is, a, a, is an extended analogy. It often comes in story form. And it serves to compare things. Now, this is a helpful and a creative way to explain something or to convince someone of something. And so in this case, as we've just read, Jesus uses this parable about a widow and a judge in order to convince his disciples to keep at it in their praying, to persevere in prayer. Now, this is a really helpful method for Jesus to use because it's a study in contrasts. And so as we're reading this parable, as we study this passage, we've got to remember that it's a, it's a parable that is an analogy that presents bold contrasts or bold comparisons in order to convince us to keep on going in our praying. Luke wants to make sure that we understand at least that much. Now, I, I want to read the couple of verses at the opening again for us because I want to introduce us to these characters one more time and I want to help us to try to enter into the parable a little bit. So as I read verses 2 and 3, I want you to figure out who are we pictured as in this parable? Who are we supposed to be identifying with? So figure that out as I read the verses. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge, character number one, who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow, character two, in that town, who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. 
Two different characters, judge and widow. Which one are we pictured as in this parable? The widow, yeah, we're supposed to identify. We're meant to identify with this widow. Now, on the basis of what we find out here in this parable, what, what can we learn about this character, about this widow? Well, we learn most obviously that she once was married, but she is so no longer. She is a widow. We also learn that she has a problem. Yeah, specifically, there's an adversary, and she is looking for justice. This is the thing that is causing her to go to this judge. And then finally, Luke tells us that she is tenacious. She kept coming to the judge with her plea. Now, that's kind of all we can get. That's all the information that we can glean from looking at the parable itself. But it might help to color in a little bit by going to some first century background on widows. And in that case, there are two things that are worth noting. Widows had a couple of choices. You know, if, a, if a widow went back to her family, you know, she left her husband's family, went back to her family, then all of the money that was exchanged at the wedding, whether a dowry or a bride price, all of that stuff would need to be returned. So financially, this is a big deal. If she stays with her husband's family, she's most likely going to have to be put into an inferior servant role. She's kind of demoted in the family. One Bible scholar even says that a lot of widows in the first century were victimized and eventually sold into slavery, a really rough scenario. Financially, she's unable to support herself. She's also legally unable to support herself. You know, the fact that she is going by herself to plead on her own behalf to this judge shows us it indicates that there isn't another family member. There's no one else who can help her. She is on her own. So this is what we know. There's a widow who can't support herself financially. She can't support herself legally. She has no support socially. This means that she is at the end of her rope. She is vulnerable. She is desperate. She is needy. And yet this is the very thing that brings out her persistence. Now, can you see yourself in her shoes in this parable? You know, we, we are like her in some ways. And we are unlike her in some ways. The, the interesting thing is that where we think that we're unlike her, we're actually like her. And where we think that we're like her, we're very much unlike her. Did you follow that? I'll try doing this with an illustration. Uh, I've really enjoyed recently seeing this spate of movies that have come out about comic book superhero characters. And so when the Avengers came out, all of a sudden all of these characters were on the screen together. And all of their strengths and weaknesses were very evident as they interacted with one another. So, so I went to see the movie with a friend of mine, and when we got done, we were comparing who our favorite character was in this storyline, and mine was Thor. Now, I've told you before that there, I have a tendency when I see a movie to kind of embody the characters when I leave the movie, and I kind of begin to act like this person. And so I go home, and I'm telling Rachel about the movie, and I'm telling her specifically about the moments where Thor really shined in the movie. And slowly but surely as I'm doing this, I'm beginning to talk like I'm like him. Thor-like, you know? Now, you have to understand, Ra Rachel has not saturated herself in comic book world. In other words, she is in reality, the real world, and so she wants to help me out of my delusions and back into reality because I'm picturing this. <laughs> I'm picturing me just like him, muscles rippling and kingish, and she's reminding me that that's just not me. And I'm saying to myself, man, I'm really happy that I'm not like him in other areas. He's really brash and arrogant, and she's gently reminding me that those are some things I probably could work on. <laughs> we tend to, 
to uh, think better of ourselves than we should and to neglect our blind spots, right? Now, I'm belaboring this point because it's really important that we see where we are like the widow and where we are unlike the widow because that's going to have a lot of implications for our prayer lives. So where, where are we like the widow in this parable? Well, like the widow, she's helpless and she's in a desperate situation, and we too are helpless. Now, we might not want to identify ourselves to be like her in this place, but we are. Do you, do you recognize this about yourself, your helplessness? You know, in our sinful pride, we might want to push back, and I'd just rather try hard, I'd rather struggle than have to admit that I need help or that things are out of my control or that I am ultimately a desperate person. Uh, on the other hand, some of us would say, I, I really don't want to do that because in my saner moments, I recognize full well I can't control everything, that I am helpless, that I am desperate. If you think for just a moment about just some of the things that mark us as we gather as a church on four campuses you'd recognize that we are helpless. Now, we're, we're helpless in the face of chronic pain and illness. We're, we're helpless with respect to rebellious children or with relationships that are characterized by unforgiveness or bitterness. Some of us are helpless in the face of massive administrative obstacles to adopting children. Some of us are helpless with infertility, wanting to start a family. Others of us are helpless because we're very lonely. We're, we have mental illness or other kinds of illness. We're financially struggling because we're out of a job. We, we, we have a job that's not providing enough. We're just in some kind of debt. Some, some of us are helpless because we're trying to grieve the loss of a loved one. Some of us are helpless because we've been praying and, and longing for someone to come to know Jesus, and that just hasn't happened yet, and the list just goes on and on. Do you know what unites all of those things? All of those things in that list bring us face to face with the end of the rope, with our helplessness. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that because we're helpless that we have nothing that we can do in the midst of these situations. I think that would be a big mistake. Oftentimes, our helplessness, a recognition of our helplessness, causes us to pray like crazy because we realize that we just don't have many options. But at the same time, it often propels us to do something. We can oftentimes do something about these things. We can take some action in these areas. That's what we see the persistent widow doing in this parable. So, so we might need to engage in a conflict. We we might need to learn new communication skills. We might need to work on a budget or go fill out another job application. We might need to do something about our parenting. I, I don't know what, what it is in those scenarios. All, all of that is true, and we do it in concert with our praying. Our praying often propels us out of our helplessness to go do something about this, to act somehow. Now, let me give you one specific illustration of this. Uh, there are a lot of guys who struggle with sexual purity, and they think that the only way this is going to be solved is by praying, if I just solely pray about this. And there's just no way. Miraculously, this thing doesn't go away without praying in our helplessness, praying like crazy, and connecting that with some action steps to minimize temptation, like internet filtering on computers and phones, and an accountability partner to talk to about these things, and making wise choices about entertainment and whatever, and a whole host of other kinds of actions. Our actions are born out of our helplessness oftentimes. They're, they're very closely connected. Now, I highlight this one because there's a really urgent application of it. 
You know, on October 20th from 8 to noon, we're going to be hosting a seminar at the St. Charles campus called Surfing for God. And so, guys, I would encourage you to sign up for this, to pay the five bucks online to participate and to get, a biblical instru- get some biblical instruction to understand the struggle and to navigate this. It's an action that is born directly out of our helplessness and out of our praying. They're, they're really intimately connected. So so I'm not saying you can't do anything even though you're helpless. What I am saying is that these scenarios underscore one central reality, that we are helpless, that we need God. That is the truth of the Christian life, the basic fundamental truth of the Christian life and all of our praying, because in my praying I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own, that I need help. We, we don't often believe this about ourselves, and so we don't pray like it's true. But until we have an accurate view of ourselves as helpless, then we're not going to persevere in prayer. And I can say that on the flip side more positively. If we realized how helpless that we really are, then we would persevere in praying because we would recognize that God is truly our only hope. That's how we're like her. How are we unlike her? Well, in this... Where the widow persists, we quit. Her concern compels her to serious persistence while we give up. This situation in our praying is the byproduct of something much bigger. We live in a culture of quitters, and that has bequeathed to us a lack of stick to So unlike the persistent widow, we give up at the drop of a hat. We we quit things because we're impatient. We live in an instant, a now, a I want it right now, the way that I want it, cell phone and microwave culture, and it makes us very impatient people. Uh, My my wife recently entered the dental world as a hygienist, and I can't tell you how many excuses that she's heard for why people don't floss their teeth every day. You know what one of the reasons is? Because it's boring. (laughs) Think about that for a second. I have all of my wisdom teeth, 32 teeth in here, and it takes me less than a minute to floss my teeth. It's boring. We're so impatient. I'm the exact same way with my cell phone. I'm guessing some of you are too. I can talk to my cell phone. I can speak words, and my cell phone transcribes it onto a note or an email or a text message. And, And so I'll take like 15 sweet whole seconds to communicate this thing, and then I'll get really frustrated because it takes forever for it to finally show up, and sometimes it doesn't show up at all. I'm just really impatient. We're impatient. We quit because we're impatient. We quit things because our role models have quit things. You know, if everybody around us lacks commitment, then that makes it okay for us. That's all that we've ever known. So when it comes to things, long-term things like marriage or like making disciples the mission of our church or our own spiritual growth, we've heard tons of excuses from people that we look up to for why they quit. And So quitters beget quitters who beget quitters. We quit things because we think only in terms of short term. Somehow we convince ourselves in the moment of this thing that I just really don't want to do this anymore. In that one moment, we think that we're going to be freed from something by quitting. But in reality, all we're doing is teaching ourselves to quit the next time around. It's not about this moment right now. It's about the kind of person I will be in the future by not quitting right now. We think short term, so we quit. We quit finally because we've been burned. 
especially in the area of praying. Some of us have spent some time praying about something only to feel like the things that we're requesting are just hitting the ceiling. They're not going anywhere. And so the perception is on the basis of our experience that God doesn't care. And then we conclude, in fact, after some period of time that he does not care. And that leads us to a solution. I'm just going to quit praying for that thing or I'm going to quit praying altogether. And so from our reason, we experience things, and then we work through, and we come to the conclusion that it's not working, and so we quit. So for these reasons, and a whole bunch more reasons, we're more practiced in quitting than we are in staying, and that has enormous implications for our praying. We're completely unlike her in this. Now, do you know what what helps to overcome the tendency to quit things? This is extremely profound. Don't quit things. Keep at it no matter what. Press on. Keep your commitment. Stick to your word. Make the intentional decision that I'm not going to quit no matter what. If, if we were to realize how helpless we really were, and if we committed that we would not quit no matter what, then we would persevere in praying because we would recognize that God is truly our only hope. Okay, so like the widow... We're helpless. Unlike the widow, she keeps at it, but we give up. So an accurate view of ourselves leads to this conclusion. We are helpless, and we tend to give up. Now, I know that that's not good news to hear, but this problem, which is our problem, is the reason that Jesus told this parable in the first place. You remember what verse 1 says? Luke tells us very clearly, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's the reason he's doing this, because we have a tendency to not pray and to give up. So Jesus engages in this parable, why? To help us to overcome our tendency to give up, to stop praying. And how are we going to do that? Well, first, we've got to have an accurate view of ourselves and be honest about it. But then secondly, we've got to have an accurate view of God. This parable presents an accurate view of God. That's our second thing to consider today. The theologian A.W. Tozer has famously said that what you think about God, excuse me, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think he's right. Now, if you think God is like the, an ogre, like the unjust judge in this parable, if you think that's how God is, it will color everything about you. But, but if you think about God instead, the way that Jesus longs for you to see him in this parable, then that will color everything about you. I had a sad experience seeing this truth on display not too long ago. In the past year, I met a guy, and in the course of the conversation, he learned that I was a pastor, and that launched us into a conversation about spiritual things. And I got a little bit of his background, learned that there was some Christian stuff back there, but he said to me, God and I are not on speaking terms. So I probed a little bit by asking a couple of questions, and I learned that suddenly and tragically, he'd lost one of his parents, and he was not doing well, and it was God's fault. And so I would have been foolish to try to give reasons and whatever for why this all happened. But what I did try to do was just present a couple of suggestions about what the Bible has to say about who God is that might sustain this guy in his pain. And most importantly, would help them get back on speaking terms. What you think, what he thought about God becomes the most important thing about him. It it filters everything that he thinks and does in his life. 
What you think about God is the most important thing about you, and this parable confirms that. We saw that there's a first character, and that's the widow. Then there's this second character in the parable, and that's the judge. Uh, We're told that this judge in verse 2 doesn't care about men. He doesn't fear God. And this is the guy that this widow has to keep on going to with her plea. Pick up the story in verse 4. She keeps on going, and for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, man, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly stop there. As as readers of this parable, which character are we supposed to connect to God? The judge. Yeah, we're we're meant to connect the judge to God, but as we do so, we've got to follow the exact same like and unlike pattern that we did with the widow. Because some people have made the mistake of reading this parable, and they come away with the conclusion that God is just like the unjust judge. That is an adventure in missing the point. God is not unjust. But equally then, we can't make the same mistake. We, we've got to read the parable and recognize the ways that he is like this judge because otherwise we'll miss the point too. And so, so how is God like him? Let's start there. You know, the judge is capable of hearing. He's capable of responding to the need of this widow. The judge's ability to respond includes the power to bring about her request. So he can hear, he can respond, he's got the power to do something about it. And then finally, even though he doesn't want to, he does in the end reward her persistence. He hears, he's powerful, and he rewards persistence. Can we say these things are true about God? Absolutely we can. And Jesus himself makes this point. Bible scholars talk about the method that Jesus uses in verses 7 and 8 to talk about this judge and his relationship to God. They talk about how he goes from light to heavy. Or we could also say he goes from small to big. An example of this would be if a human father can love his children, then how much more can God love his children? From the light to the heavy. So, So here Jesus is arguing That if the unjust judge is capable of hearing and powerfully acting and rewarding persistence, that's the light, that's the small side, then how much more capable of these things is God? That's the heavy or the big side. In verse 7, we're told that God hears those who cry out to him day and night. That is extremely encouraging. In verse 8, Jesus says that if God God does have the power to respond, he will see that they get the justice that they're looking for. And in reference to rewarding perseverance, Jesus asks this question, is he going to keep putting them off in verse 7? And the implied answer is no. No, he's not going to keep putting them off. So like the judge, God hears. God has the power to act, and God rewards perseverance. That's how he's like him. How is God unlike him? In this... Where the judge is unjust, God is just. Where where this unjust judge is uncaring, God is good. God is good. 
This is the key to persevering prayer. I'm guessing that a lot of us could affirm that God hears our prayers, that he has the power to act, and that he rewards persistence. But then we start to wonder, why isn't he rewarding my persistence? Why isn't he acting in my situation? Why isn't he hearing and answering my prayer? You know, we want to say, I've read the verses about seeking and knocking and asking, and I've been seeking and I haven't found anything. I've been knocking, the door's not opening. I've been asking, but there is no answer. The the driving motivation that lies underneath those questions, those struggles, is the belief that God is just like the unjust judge. The problem comes in because we don't believe that God is good, and if we can't resolve this issue, then we're not going to pray at all. And So if if God is good, then why does he use this process at all? Uh, Why why doesn't he simply bestow upon us what he wants rather than causing us to pray like this in a persistent way? Well, these are not easy questions to answer, and part of the reason is because I'm not God. But that being said, I have heard some adequate responses to this kind of thing. Some people have said that God wants to be appreciated as the sole source of everything we need. Or that God wants to be recognized, wants us to recognize that he is our only hope. Some say that the more that we plea, the more that we wait, the more we will value the result, the answer, if and when it comes, and most importantly, the more we'll appreciate God. Others say at times there are these larger things going on in God's plan, and we don't know what those things are. Others say, finally, that some, some think that this process of perseverance purges our motives. It clarifies whether this request is really about God's glory and about our growth. Maybe one or two of those things strikes a chord with you. But I'd like you to note that Jesus doesn't address that whole topic at all when he talks about this. I think it's a little bit odd that Jesus addresses the topic of persevering prayer, but he doesn't address why this has to happen at all. I thought it was odd the first time I read through it, and then I thought about it for a little while longer. Do do you know what Jesus does instead of addressing that question? Jesus appeals to the character of God plain and simple. He trusts God. God can be trusted. God is just. God is good. Now Look look at the words again in verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. He appeals immediately to God's character. And he doesn't say this because that's the right answer and so there. And he doesn't say this because he's naive or he's simplistic. He says this because at the deepest, most fundamental level, this is true, and it's the most satisfying thing for us to recognize that God is good. In fact, I would say that it's more satisfying than any of these other answers that I've just mentioned to that question. I could say this humbly. I do say this humbly. We don't need to know. We don't need to know what God is up to in all this. What we need to know is that God is good. 
God is good. How much different would your prayer life look if you believed beyond the shadow of the doubt that God is good? How much different would your prayer life look if you believe that in God's goodness, he is for you? Jesus didn't just talk about this stuff in cute little parables. He lived and experienced this to a degree that none of us ever will. On our trip to Israel, we went to a spot outside of the eastern wall of Jerusalem, a little garden known as Gethsemane. And we stood in the spot where in agony Jesus prayed. And then we went over to another section of the garden of Gethsemane, and we spent time reading our Bibles and praying there for a couple of hours. Mark 14 Verses 32 through 36 tell this story. They, they went to the place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Oh, we missed one. There it is. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Question. Did Jesus receive an answer to his prayer? On the one hand, we'd say that the take this cup from me prayer wasn't answered because he went to the cross. But, but on the other hand, we would say that this prayer was absolutely positively answered in its entirety, even including the take this cup from me, because he said, not my will, but your will be done. And that prayer was answered because God accomplished his will on the cross. The, the writer of Hebrews answers this question, was, God's, was Jesus' an, a, prayer answered in chapter 5, verse 7 by saying this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears, certainly referring to Gethsemane, to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus was heard. Jesus knew that God is good. And Jesus knew that God would do good. And so he prayed persistently. So if we had an accurate view of ourselves that we're helpless and that we're ten we tend to quit. And if we had an accurate view of God that he is good, that he does hear us, that he has the power to respond, that he rewards those who are persistent, then we would persevere in our praying because we would know that God is our only hope. Never, never, never give up because it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Now, I want to close by making a brief comment about the last line of this passage. It might have struck you as a little bit odd as you kind of put this in the context of everything that's been said, where, G where Jesus says this, follow along the last line, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's kind of a big switcheroony here at the last second. We as people have an incredible tendency to uh, turn the tables in discussions about prayer. 
Here's what I mean by this. You could be having a conversation with somebody about prayer, asking them if they're able to stick to it. Are you consistently going at it with that thing that you were praying about? And, and they'll say, no, I'm not anymore because God didn't answer that prayer, so why should I continue praying it? And just really subtly and very, very quickly, something has changed here. The conversation is no longer about are you sticking to it, but why isn't he doing his job to answer it? In, in that one moment... It, it's been shifted and God is now the one who's on trial. Not, not anymore you're on trial, are you the one who's sticking to it, but God's on trial, is he the one who's answered? Why isn't he answering? Uh, Jesus' comment here at the last makes sure, ensures that this can't happen. We may be tempted to respond that the reason that we stop praying is because God didn't answer our prayer, but that's really not the issue. The issue is whether we're going to continue praying or not, whether we're going to continue persevering in prayer. And so when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes, he's not going to be inspecting whether God has done his part. He has, I promise you. He will be inspecting whether we have done our part. Will we be persevering? Will we be faithful in our praying? That's a fitting question to ask as we conclude this series, Teach Us to Pray. God is waiting for his people to pray. So will we pray? Disciplined prayer and balanced prayer and corporate prayer and intercessory prayer. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to persevere in praying these things? Let's hope, let's pray that the answer is yes when Jesus comes. Now, I'm done preaching formally, but I just want to make two quick pastoral encouragement comments to you. The, the first one is somewhat related to what I've just said in this message, and that is that next weekend is our WOW weekend. And so I want to encourage you to be praying this week about people that you could be inviting, people that would receive your invitation, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, family members, friends, whoever, You'd be praying that they receive your invitation and that they make it with you next weekend to WOW Weekend. And then the other thing is a few weeks away, and that's baptism. I just want to throw my encouragement your way about baptism. If you're a new believer in Jesus or you are an unbaptized, long-time believer in Jesus, go to a class at your campus and, and get the information necessary to understand what's going on with baptism and then get baptized. Jump in the water, symbolically dying and rising with Jesus. Baptism is a really big deal. We want to see people getting baptized, all right? Now, we're going to pray to close this teaching series, Teach Us to Pray. It's a fitting way to end it, right? And so to do so at the campuses, I want to hand things over to our campus pastors. And then here in St. Charles, I'm going to pray to close. And as I do so, Eric is going to come, and he's going to uh, then lead us into a time of communion. All right, so why don't you bow with me, and we'll pray. Jesus, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can open it here together in this way and to spend time reflecting on it. And I'm thankful, Jesus, for this last line that you put the onus back on us as we persevere in praying. It's the purpose of the parable that we wouldn't give up. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would instill in us, give us the tenacity by your spirit to keep at it in our praying. God, that we would be a praying people, prioritizing prayer in our lives to develop and enrich a relationship with you and also to see results in lots of ways in our church and in our families and in our community and in our world. Jesus, we pray that you would do it by your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.